morning, Africa, and welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Bungani in Washington. Today is Wednesday, June the 15th, and here are some of the stories we're covering for you this morning. Britain canceled a flight scheduled to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda after the European Court of Human Rights intervened. Uh, we will give them an opportunity to see what it's like uh, to live in this country. We do not consider living in Rwanda a punishment. We don't think anyone should. That's Rwanda's government spokesperson Yolanda Makolo and South African President Cyril Ramaphosa says the police should be allowed to investigate allegations that he failed to disclose a multi-million dollar robbery at his farm two years ago. So how will the fallout from this scandal affect his leadership? At the end of the year, we've got the ANC leadership um, conference coming up where Ramaphosa is up for re-election and um, that obviously puts his leadership in jeopardy. Darren Teller is following this story in Johannesburg in Malawi. A civil society group is calling on President Razaras Chakwera, his vice president and the entire cabinet to cut their salaries by half. We'll have those stories and more coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. Stay tuned. And for our top story, the European Court of Human Rights has ruled to block the flight that would take asylum seekers to Rwanda on Wednesday. That's according to the UK's Home Office. This happened after the court granted an urgent injunction to one of the asylum seekers, which had been earlier rejected by the UK's Court of Appeal. Eugène Wimana has more on this story from Kigali, Rwanda. From 7 to 0, all asylum seekers who were expected to depart from RAF Boscombe Down in Wiltshire at 10.30 p.m. British summertime were removed. The Boeing 747 charter flight was grounded, halted by a law certified by human rights activists and campaigners claiming the UK Rwanda deal is inhumane. At the front of the deportation plan, protest were asylum seekers themselves. Yolande Makolo, the spokesperson of the Rwandan government, says... It is because they hear unfounded allegations on Rwanda. A lot of them have a misconception about what Rwanda is like and what Africa is like. And to be quite honest, some of this is perpetuated by, by media uh, you know, that does not reflect the, the reality of our countries. Uh, we will give them an opportunity to see what it's like uh, to live in this country. We do not consider living in Rwanda a punishment. We don't think anyone should. More than 130 migrants had been originally selected for deportation to Rwanda, but everyone now succeeded in escaping the flight. They have been claiming the plan was modern slavery and a breach of their human rights to a family. The Rwandan government, however, assures they would be well taken care of and integrated in the society, respecting their freedom. Accommodation facility is not a detention facility, so uh, they will be free to come and go as their case is looked at. The decision of the European Court for Human Rights to cancel the flight over the first batch of asylum seekers means that no other flight will take off until a full review is done to determine whether the policy is lawful. And this, according to the Home Office, cannot happen before July. The seemingly difficult mission of sending asylum seekers to Rwanda, according to London, was an effort to prevent migrants from traffickers, crossings in small boats, hiding in containers in the trucks, and other dangers for those seeking entry into the UK. This was under a five-year migration and economic development partnership signed two months ago on June 14th. 
Rwanda hosts over 130,000 refugees from Africa, including the DRC and Burundi, and from Afghanistan and other places around the world. The government says they enjoy full legal and employment rights. For Daybreak Africa, I'm Ajen Uiman from Chigari, Rwanda. In South Africa, President Cyril Ramaphosa says that police should be allowed to investigate him after a former intelligence official accused him of failing to disclose a multi-million dollar robbery at his farm in 2020. Former intelligence chief Arthur Fraser alleges that thieves stole between four and eight million dollars and that the president did not disclose the incident to the public. Ramaphosa, who came to power on an anti-corruption ticket, confirmed the robbery. But he says the allegations are a smear campaign by political enemies and that the money came from legal sales of rare game animals. For more on this story, I reached VOA's Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. How is it that President Ramaphosa is having to defend himself after he was the one who was a victim of a, of a robbery? Give us a little understanding of what took place. Well, he's having to defend himself because he can't really explain what, uh, what went on on the night of the 9th of February uh, 2020. Uh, he's confirmed there was a robbery. He says he was away in uh, Addis Ababa at the time. He was uh, with some African Union uh, business. So that much we know that the robbery did take place. But um, there's great mystery surrounding uh, how much money was actually stolen. He, he won't say. He says it's just uh, much less than what people are saying. Now, the person who laid the charges against uh, Ramaphosa for defeating the ends of justice um, effectively by not reporting the crime is uh, a man by the name of Arthur Fraser, who's the former intelligence head over here in South Africa and uh, is a known ally of former President uh, Jacob Zuma, who is, of course, um, an enemy of Cyril Ramaphosa. Ramaphosa re replaced him and ousted Zuma. So you've got that dynamic working over here as well. This, this happened uh, in 2020, February of 2020, over two years ago. How is it that this story is just coming to, to surface right now? Well, it surfaced a couple of weeks ago when uh, Arthur Fraser laid the charges at a local police station here in Johannesburg. That's the first time that South Africans got to know about, uh, about the story. And that's why people are so suspicious. Because a robbery at a president's home or ranch, huge news. So, you know, that's what's got everyone thinking. Um, he says he reported it to the police at the time, but the police have since uh, confirmed that um, uh, an, a, an official case was not investigated. Now, why not? Those are the questions that are flying around. And obviously the implication by the people that have now disclosed this information about the robbery on Ramaphosa's ranch want to imply that Ramaphosa is involved in crime, effectively, mm, right. involved in money laundering, because, you know, he is one of Africa's richest men, before he became president, he had extensive business interests around South Africa, including holding the franchise for McDonald's. Um, he's always been very interested in, in game animals. He actually collects these luxury and rare game animals. 
and then he he sells them, he trades in them, and he says this is where the money came from. But what people want to know as well is, are you really telling us that you keep millions of rands of, of sales of game animals on, on your ranch? Um, and, you know, these are the questions that he, he so far right. really has not been, been able to answer. Well, what kind of fallout has there been since the story broke? Well, of course, it's brought uh, Cyril Ramaphosa under immense pressure. Uh, as you probably know, he rose to power on a ticket of anti-corruption because his predecessor, Jacob Zuma, was allegedly the architect of state capture, stole billions of, of allegedly stole billions of, of dollars of taxpayer money when he captured um, state-owned enterprises, put his cronies in there who allegedly plundered all, all this money. So this, the story swirling around Ramaphosa now and all the suspicion is, is, is dragging his, his reputation down. And you must also remember that at the end of the year, We've got the ANC leadership um, conference coming up where Ramaphosa is up for re-election. And um, that obviously puts his leadership, or this puts this controversy, puts his, his leadership in, in jeopardy. That was reporter Darren Taylor speaking with me from Johannesburg. Daybreak Africa continues. East African lawmakers are calling for the implementation of a single tourism visa to boost tourism in the region. This comes after a new study indicates that tourism decreased by 60% due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Moses Javiarimana reports from Arusha in Tanzania. Tourism in East Africa contributes to about 10% of the region's GDP and contributes to 7% of employment. Regional lawmakers are now calling for four member states to implement the single tourism visa that has been implemented by Kenya, Rwanda and Uganda. Uganda lawmaker Dennis Namara points out the advantages. And yet actually would would benefit more if we are complementing each other where we have a comparative advantage. If, for example, in Uganda and Rwanda, we have the chimpanzees, and then tourists come to Tanzania, and the gorillas, they come to Tanzania. If there was an aspect of the tourism sector there, it would add a lot of uh, economic sense in the tourism sector. A report issued last year indicated that East African community member states lost 92% revenues in the tourism sector due to the COVID-19 pandemic. In 2020, Travel and tourism in Kenya contributed to about 4.2 billion US dollars, but that amount declined by nearly 50% compared to 2019. George Odong is a regional lawmaker from Uganda. The East African Community Secretary should take an initiative under its uh, strategy, develop a tourism package, and come up with a very good policy that promotes the region as a single tourism destination. Many of our partner states were part of the Dubai Expo, and each one of our partner states went as a partner state. Kenya, Uganda, and Rwanda are the only East African community member states to implement the single tourist visa, where tourists only pay once at the first point of entry. They can then travel and visit other member states without being required to pay other visa charges while entering the partner states. Susan Nakauchi is a lawmaker from Uganda. I've not seen anywhere, be it in any catalog or anywhere, where we are marketing our region as a single destination. We, at one point, we had started a single tourist visa, 
I don't know what happened with a single tourist visa. Now every country is on their own, and God is for us all. Let's market our region as a whole. Let tourists come and hop through the different partner states. Deferring measures to fight COVID-19 are among the challenges hindering the growing of the sector in member states. The regional assembly called on member states to harmonize the coronavirus testing fees and is asking the Council of Ministers to adapt the regional recovery plan. Moses Haviarimana, VOA Africa, Arusha, Tanzania. In Malawi, a civil society group is calling on President Razaras Chakwera, his vice president, Saulos Chilima, and the entire cabinet to cut their salaries by half. The Center for Democracy Economic Development Initiative says that the reductions could help save the country enough money to help cushion the effects of the latest austerity measures announced by the government. The calls come after the president recently announced cutting the budget to help jumpstart the economy. It comes as civil society groups and opposition parties are arguing the government to solve the rising cost of essential goods and services in the southern African country. For more on the call for the government to lead by example, VOS Peter Cloti reached Sylvester Namiwa. He's the executive director for the Center of Democracy Economic Development Initiatives. The president is asking everyone to tighten their belts apart from himself. Now, where is the morality of uh, subjecting the people to austerity measures when the executive is swimming in riches. This is why we are asking a moral question to say why should Malawians continue paying tax when actually there is nothing uh, to point out to the three months of Tonsi Alliance in government. Simply put, uh, the president should lead the way he promised that he is going to be servant leader. Therefore, he should share the pain with Malawians. To do that, the president should immediately stop his uh, travels, both local and international. He should learn to trust his cabinet. Most of these trips he can easily delegate to cabinet ministers, their deputies, and uh, the permanent secretaries. But, but Sylvester, some people are suggesting that in spite of the tough economic conditions Malawians face, the government has to still run. So the, this call is just a populist stance, they argue, because it will not necessarily resolve the tough prevailing economic conditions. How do you respond to such critics? All these economic hardships, they're hitting hard on the, uh, the marginalized and vulnerable that are in the millions. This is why we think that Real austerity measures will help. The government should save a little something to cushion these people that are starving to death. So to do that, this is why we need uh, pure austerity measures, not the recent PR stance that President Dr. has been staging. This is why we are challenging the president to cut his salary by 50%. The same applies to the uh, salary of the vice president and his cabinet. Secondly, he should trim his cabinet from 32 to 20. Uh, at the same time, he has got 22 advisors. What for? This is a duplication. We need to, he, the president should chop that crowd of advisors from 22 to 5. Through that, we're going to make meaningful savings. So much that we should cushion the marginalized and the poor that are in majority. People, my brother, are struggling in Malawi. Sylvester, what went into the thinking of the numbers that you gave right now? What are the calculations that went into it that you think, by your statement, could help revive the 
economic conditions in Malawi. So it is the situation on the ground that prompted us to think of that figure. If it were that we are serious country, in fact, the president should have forgone his, his salary because these are the people that do not pay tax. These are the people that have provided right to pour this uh, electricity, everything in state houses for free. I'm saying these are the people that are literally surviving on the sweat of poor people. Therefore, this is the time that they should sympathize, they should share the pain with the people. We cannot afford the poor people providing for people that are not even paying taxes. That was Sylvester Namiwa. He's the executive director of the Center for Democracy, Economic Development Initiatives in Malawi. He was speaking to VOS Peter Cloti. This week, the international community marks the World Blood Donor Day. Health experts say that Africa has recorded low blood donations over the last two years. According to the World Health Organization, contributions have fallen by 17% in the region. Moreno Jambo has more on this story. According to the World Health Organization, at least 7 million blood donations are required to meet Africa's transfusion needs. It is estimated that about 5.5 million donations are generated every year across the continent. More than 1.5 million more are needed. This year's theme is donating blood is an act of solidarity. Join the efforts and save lives. WHO's Director General Tedros Ghebreyesus says globally, many communities do not have access to safe blood. Blood donors have continued to give in short wing they have provided an essential service to their communities and a safeguard for patients and health systems. And yet, around the world, women and children are the most at risk. So please give blood if you can and give regularly. And to the millions of blood donors around the world, thank you. You're literally lifesavers. The International Day was created to raise global awareness of the need for safe blood and blood products for transfusion. The occasion also provides a call to action to governments and national health authorities to provide adequate resources. Tedros says that includes increasing the collection of blood from voluntary and paid blood donors and managing access to blood transfusions for those who require it. We highlight the life-saving power of blood transfusions. Voluntary blood donors come from all walks of life, but they have one thing in common. They give of themselves to others, people they don't even know. Blood donations are a lifeline in emergencies, disasters, humanitarian crisis, and for people who need regular transfusions. In Kenya, at least seven people require blood transfusion every 10 minutes. However, the country suffers a shortage of supply. Only 16% of the blood needed in the country is collected. Paul Wayodi works for Kenya National Blood Transfusion Services. I normally get SMSs for those people in need of blood. And uh, what I normally do, I tend to connect them through regional blood donor centers that are in Kenya. I can also contact groups that we formed. Like in Mombasa, we had Coast Lifesavers. This was a voluntarily non-numerated regular blood donors. So normally when we are in shortage of blood, we contact them. So whoever is due for donation, we contact him and then he can, so that he can go to where the patient is, donate blood. This year's campaign aims to encourage governments to build a sustainable and resilient national blood system. Reporting for VOS Daybreak Africa, I am Moreno Giambo in Sacramento, California.
Countries all over Africa need more investment and better pay for workers to improve their health care for residents, says Pierre Mpele, the Africa Bureau Director for Mercy Ships. Mpele was recently in Dakar for an international symposium on strengthening surgical, obstetric and anesthetic care system in Africa. He spoke to Ricky Shryok about efforts to improve care. It's not only about the surgical care. It's about the uh, entire national health system everywhere in Africa. You know, there are few countries in Africa with a very strong and resilient health system. So most of the countries are very weak. And this has been demonstrated by the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, so it's uh, about the human resources. Uh, only 2% of the doctors are uh, in Africa. We are a big continent. 1.2 billion people are living in Africa, but only 2% of doctors. We have less than one sur- surgical specialist for 100,000 people. So the situation is not uh, very good. There are so many management capacity. Most of the institutional uh, capacity is very weak. Uh, we are facing the uh, funding gaps. We don't have enough financial resources to, uh, to support the scaling up of uh, interventions. I'm glad you mentioned human resources. Um, one of my experiences in reporting in the region, especially during Ebola, and there was a lot of talk about nurses not being prepared, but um, in Sierra Leone, for example, n- many of the nurses aren't even paid. They're on voluntary basis. So while a lot of um, people and organizations come in trying to address these systematic issues, there's this simple underlying issue in a lot of these countries. The healthcare workers aren't even paid or they're paid very, very little. What role do you think that has, has in basic healthcare? Uh, this is the, the true or one of the key challenges we are facing in Africa because building a health system is about people first. Uh, the number and the quality, they should be well paid, you know, uh, but uh, the, the situation is that we don't have enough people, we don't have enough doctors, we don't have enough surgeons, we don't have enough uh, nurses. What kind of solutions are being found for that problem? That the solution is to, uh, to always have uh, health or the surgical care on the top of the agenda of the head of states, you know, governments, government to increase the fundings, uh, internal uh, fundings, that is very important, and also to bring our international part- partners to support the effort the African nation are, you know, are making to, uh, to make sure that at least by 2030 we, 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 uh, we have our national health system better than 20 years back. So specialists are a very big problem in the region as well. Um, is, is that point to a lack of um, educational resources on the continent? Because- of course, health and education are, 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 are inter, interlinked, interconnected. So uh, if you want more doctors, you have to build a very strong education system and also, you know, uh, having uh, nursing schools, med- uh, uh, medical school uh, in place. That was Pierre Mpere, the Africa Bureau Director for Mercy Ships. He was speaking with reporter Ricky Shryok. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending this morning with us. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Until next time, I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington wishing you a great week ahead, Africa. 
Sports fans, brighten your day by tuning into the sunny side of sports Monday through Friday at 1630 and 1830 UTC. Join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash VOA Sunny and on Twitter at VOA Sunny Sports or check out the blog at blogs.voanews.com forward slash Sunny. It's the sunny side of sports right here on the Voice of America. Hello, I'm Douglas Simpoga, host of VOA's Reporters Roundtable. Join us every Thursday as we discuss important African topics and events. I'll have a panel of African journalists and expert guests to discuss the topic at hand. We take a deeper look at important after news topics. That's Reporters Roundtable every Thursday at 17.30 UTC, right here on VOA Africa. <laughs> 